Hey, welcome to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. We are professional screenwriters. We've worked together as a team and separately. We've worked on studio and indie films, live action and animation, from my work on Inside Out and Captain Marvel. To my work in Pixar's story department on Up, Brave, and Inside Out. We are here to share our insights on the craft of screenwriting and also the life. How to not only survive the ups and downs, but thrive. We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today, we are chatting with Nicole Perlman, the writer of one of Marvel's most important and beloved franchises, Guardian of the Galaxy. Nicole also has a story by credit on Captain Marvel and Detective Pikachu. And in addition to writing and directing the award-nominated sci-fi short film, The Slows. Nicole's ability to combine riveting action, spot-on humor, and richly drawn characters makes her one of the industry's in-demand writers. So welcome, Nicole. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate getting to be here. So excited. Yeah, it'll be fun. And Nicole, I'm just going to say it's also one of my favorite people in the whole wide world. So I'm just thrilled that you're here with us today to talk. It's going to be super fun. Yeah, I've missed seeing you and it's really fun to get to see you and no one else gets to see you, but we, we can, <laughs> which is amazing. We can see her. <laughs> well, thank you. I feel the same way. And I'm, I'm really happy to see you guys. And uh, hopefully one day we'll get to see each other in person. Ah, uh, yes. Yes. So before we get into our conversation, uh, let's talk about our weeks on a segment we like to call Adventures in Screenwriting. Lorian, how was your week? Well, uh, my week was, you know, the usual. Uh, up and down all over the place. Uh, At the beginning of the week, I set a challenge for myself and I invited uh, Screenwriting Life listeners uh, on the Facebook group to join me to um, do a barf draft of a new script in two weeks. Uh, And so in typical me fashion, I've spent this week, week one, doing a whole bunch of other stuff. (laughs) I rearranged my office. I... (laughs) Uh, you know, Meg and I met a woman at Austin uh, who like saw us and put out her arms and was like, hello. And the first thing I said was, you know, your hair is amazing because she has curly hair. And so then she recommended some curly products. So I tried them today. Uh, I love it. You know, so uh, also it looks really good. Thank it you. looks good. So we yeah. later people, our listeners can't see us, but Nicole also has curly yes. hair and I have curly hair. So we're going to have an off uh, camera discussion <laughs> about products Se- here. Separate, separate podcast. Separate yeah. podcast on that's curly hair. I, that's what I did today. Uh, this morning was, you know, work out new hair stuff. So, but this is uh, my process. So I have a length of time to do a thing and I will uh, mess around for a while. And then next week I will write the damn script. And I will do it because this is what I do. And I used to really beat myself up about this and feel shame and guilt and like, oh my God, what am I doing? I'm wasting my time. But now I, I know this is my process. I sort of binge write and I have a real deadline because I committed to doing it with a whole bunch of people. So I am determined not to let myself or them down because I'm sort of like, let's do this. And then I can't be like, I didn't do it. Hmm. So, um, but I, I will do it. And yes. Um, but I think for me, that's been a big growth thing in terms of being a writer to understand that what works for me, what work is what works for me. And that I can ask everybody else, what's your process? What's your process if you have a you know certain amount of time? And that's what works for them. And that I don't have to try to emulate them in order to achieve uh, the same results that they have with that process. And I think 
when I was younger, well, not younger, when I was earlier in my career, um, I had this idea that if I took a survey of what all these successful writers did and then did those things, then it would work for me. And it just this doesn't. I have a process. Um, of course, I don't have like a, a deadline, like a, it's not a paid job. Those I treat a little differently, right? Mm -hmm. Those I attack right away because you, you know, you have to get notes and, and do that. But when it's mine, I sort of feel, okay, that's not true. Absolutely. I had, a, I had like 12 weeks to write a feature and I ended up doing it in the last three weeks. So <laughs> that's true. absolutely <laughs> a lie of what I just said. As I said it, I was like, yeah, no, this is my process. But uh, anyway, so that sort of- Don't they call that productive procrastination? exactly what that is. I don't know. Uh, but I have been productive and I have really wanted to reorganize my office and sort of reclaim this space. So I don't feel like I'm banished. You know, I bought a rug. I moved my desk. You know, I feel um, it feels like it's happier down here because, you know, I'm going to still be down here doing Zooms, doing this. Um, and then uh, I've been thinking a lot about story engines for TV. So I've been... Um, writing log lines, which is not one of my favorite things to do. And it's really hard for me because again, it's that 30,000 foot view. And, uh, but the engine has to be in the log line, you know? So if I can't articulate it in with the character and the setting and what the show is about, then I don't know what it is. So it's, so I have pages of really terrible log lines all over my office that I would stop while I was building a bookshelf, you know, and sort of, because <laughs> it is productive what I'm doing with my office. I'm building furniture, I'm moving things around, but I'm still thinking and processing. It's churning in there. Yeah, it's churning that's around. what I'm telling myself. I don't know if that's another lie. Um, oh, we can't wait till next week when it's done. <laughs> when it's done, I'll let you <laughs> When it's know. all done, the next time we talk, it's going to be all done. I have to come up with some way how to be accountable, how to hold it up. Like, look, I wrote 31 pages. I want to see it. Yeah, you can see it. Yeah. Um, it's, it has to be new too. It can't just be like a recycled script that I opened and <laughs> no, edit. No, you need to send it to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it'll be Barfy and please don't read it. But I do need to be accountable. But yeah, so that was my week. Uh, Nicole, how was your week? My week was was good. It was sort of a, um, you know, it was there were there were some surprisingly good things that happened. There were some, you know, ongoing frustrations. Um, I have a, uh, you know, I've been sort of poised to direct my first feature for a while. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, we have financing. We have cast, we have a location, um, and we were we had a production start date. <laughs> Notice I used the word had. Um, so we had a, an issue with our, our lead cast member uh, last minute. And as a result, we've had to recast. And, um, and it's really a difficult role to recast uh, because it's very specific. So, um, so we kind of, it was almost like being at the starting line. Like I cleared my schedule for the first half of 2022. I was looking at Airbnbs in Puerto Rico. You know, I was like, I was like, who's gonna watch my cat? You know, I had the whole thing figured out. And, uh, and then you get that, that um, call and you're like, wait a second. Okay. This, this is a, uh, you know, this is the nature of filmmaking is, is pivoting and, and having to um, sort of adjust your expectations. So that was, 
in some ways it wasn't a bad thing because there've been other projects that are, were kind of like gasping for, for breath on the side, being like, you need to pay attention to me that now I can actually nourish. Um, but one of the good things that happened was uh, I have, you know, Meg knows that I'm, I'm kind of insecure about television because I haven't really worked in that medium before. Um, but I did set up a TV show um, with a big streamer and this is, and, and got a big, like one of my favorite directors attached um, and it's been a huge thing. So I've been really excited about it, but uh, I was very nervous about writing my pilot because they have to uh, decide whether or not they pick up the series based on the pilot. So I, um, I wrote an entire, you know, I wrote the treatment. I worked on that for a long time. I wrote the pilot. Uh, I showed it to uh, trusted friends, including Meg, and everyone's like, oh, this would make a great first half of a feature. <laughs> you, either, but, but it's not a TV show. And I was like, you're totally right. And so rather than hand that in, I basically said, hey, guys, can you give me a few weeks? And I went back and I just completely wrote a brand new pilot um, in half the time. And, uh, and I just handed that in. And I was really nervous. Like I, I couldn't sleep the night that I handed it in because uh, you know, I hadn't gotten any feedback on the new version. I, I, I had no idea if it was going to work out or not. And uh, not only did they like it, they liked it so much they didn't give me any notes. They just handed it straight to the studio. What? Yeah. <laughs> That's so, a miracle. I know, but of course I'm suspicious. I'm like, yes. okay, wait. A I know, right? I know. What does what, that mean? What does yeah. that mean? Yeah. Is, was the director too busy? Is he on a scout? Is he too busy to actually read it? Like, yeah. like what, what does this so mean? Funny. So I can't, I can't fully believe it yet, but it did go in this week, um, which right. I, I was expecting another chance to do, you know, at least one more rewrite before it went in. But that, that was a, a great show of confidence. And I felt really bolstered by it because, um, you know, TV is not my first medium. Hooray! Yay! Yay! <laughs> Good week. When you get news like a recasting or a production delay or a huge change, do you have like some kind of ritual or process that you do to like work your way through the news? Yeah, I do actually. Um, my, I, it's a really good question. Um, this is one of the reasons I love this podcast. <laughs> um, I, you know, for, you know, my husband does this thing where he goes, what's the worst case scenario? And, and we go through it and we're like, well, what's the worst case scenario? I'll never get to direct this movie. The worst case scenario, I, you know, the, um, like, I'll never get to direct any movie, you know, worst case scenario, we just keep going. And we're like, well, what, what happens then? What happens then? And, and what we realize is like, I love writing. I can always direct something really cheaply. I already know how to do it. I've got all the tools. I've been through all the training. I've got a ton of friends in the industry. I could always do a micro budget thing. You know, there's like, and I was like, oh, okay, well, that's not so bad. Like I could still make a movie, even if it's not this movie. I think it will be this movie, but you know, and then suddenly, suddenly I'm like, it's almost like the, it's like a, a self-soothing kicks in mm. immediately. And so it reminds me a lot of that, you know, that Chinese proverb about like good news versus bad news or good luck versus bad luck, where some Something that looks like bad luck can actually be good luck and vice versa. And so mm. sometimes I, um, you know, I was talking to the, the casting director um, who is actually a friend of mine from high school. <laughs> and, uh, and he was like, you realize that this happens all the time. He says, and it's happening a lot right now for, you know, 
COVID reasons. And he said, the other thing is, is once you get your new person in that role, you're, you're going to be like, why did I ever think this other person was this character when it's so clearly this person who I cast? And, you know, immediately you'll be like, well, of course it's the person I cast. That person inhabits that character and brings so much to the role. And I thought that was really smart because I, I could definitely see that happening of being like, oh, this is the person it was meant to be to play this part. So, um, so I really sort of cling to that, uh, that kind of, you know, things that help you keep your equilibrium because it's really easy to lose it in this industry. Mm -hmm. So um, I feel like being able to, um, you know, recover like one of those boppy clowns that you wall up and then it just sort of gets back up. Like, I, I feel like that's kind of a figuring out a way to do that, that, that doesn't feel punishing, but just sort of reminds you that um, this is kind of just part of the process. It's it's a rocky road. And, and I, I feel like it's very helpful to hear about other directors who are going through this, like people with much more experience than I am, that I, than I have. And, um, and just being like, yeah, there were some bumps along the way and the movie happens and it didn't happen, but just like, you know, you, you take your hits and you keep going. Yeah. I, I love, love that positive attitude. I love worst case scenario, scenario weighing, <laughs> however you say that is the gerundial, but I, I, that's a very self soothing kind of thing. Cause it, it also reveals a lot about what your bigger fears are. Yeah. Right. And I think that's always very helpful too. That and how much agency you actually do have. Definitely. Right. No matter what the outside world does. And I mean, for writers, especially worst case scenario, you can still write, right? Yeah. I mean, that will never be taken away from you. So that's amazing. I love that. Yeah. Meg, how uh, was your week? How was my week? Um, my week was as every week up and down. Um, but, you know, Austin was such a great, amazing kickoff into the week that um, I'm still buzzing from it and mm. just so kind of happy from having met everybody. And, um, you know, uh, my husband and I had a big conversation about writing process that was very illuminating to me in terms of, um, like to be a writer, you obviously have to be intuitive, meaning an interior kind of gut check constantly, which is literally like a body check. And then you also have to be, of course, kind of in your intellect and doing structure and what is the narrative drive here and, and how we both do both, but he really depends first and foremost on his intuition. And I think because I've been in rooms, like at Pixar my brain has had to shift over to throw an idea, throw an idea, throw an idea. Well, what's the structure of that? Okay, that person just threw that idea. What's the end of that? And going and, go, and I'm still having to use my intuition in that room. I'm, but it's a very different brain process, right? It's a throw, 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 go, go, pile it up on the table, sort through it intuitively. Something's wrong in this pile, throw, throw, throw. So I, you know, that's how I do it when he asked me a question about his script and I can just see him like staring off. And I'm like, what do you like throw an idea? And he's like, I'm intuiting, I'm feeling it. And like, it's just, it's just like, you have to have respect for whatever comes first in that other person's process. Do you know what I mean? Like, and give them space to do it. I have to give him space. And sometimes if I just have to go with his intuition, even if he can't tell me why, like, I just, this isn't right. Mm. And he literally can't move forward mm. until his intuition and his body figures out, yes, yes, I get that, I can go forward. Um, so it's just a different, it's an interesting process, different processing, but you can, which is why, you know, you learn from each other from the business front, um, you know, on our, on our screenwriting life, some people had asked for mugs and stuff. So we set up a, a little merchandising thing for people, you know, we're not making money off of it. It's just, if you want a mug or whatever, and I don't remember whose idea it was, but somebody put a crying pillow on there. 
I don't remember. Maybe it was my idea. I don't remember. Was it yours, Lorian? So it literally oh, just says. No, it was writer's... your idea. But I talk about crying all the time. So I right. bought one. I have one. So I bought one because I was like the writer's <laughs> crying pillow. And, and I literally thought it was just going to be decoration and something fun. And and I was like, oh, yeah, no, I held on to that thing. This week. Wait, what is uh, a, What is a crying pillow? It's just something to hold on to when it's just getting too hard. And, oh. you know, you know and it's, it's, just, a, it's a literal pillow. It's and a it literal says, pillow. Writer's crying pillow. On like it. literally oh. when you got the call about, yeah. hey, that she's not going to show up on set because she's not coming. You would pick yeah. up your crying pillow and hold it and give yourself a hug. Um, but it wasn't for my, it was, you know, it was kind of a high class crying problem, which is. Uh, a project came in for me to do that. I'm just not available to do it. I'm, you know, if I want to do it well, it's not the kind of project I could ever do two hours a day on a Saturday, right? Mm-hmm. Amongst all the other, amongst the commitments I have, which I have these commitments and I don't do things unless I do it a hundred percent because people are paying me. There's an expectation and it's just who I am. So I had to say no <laughs> to this project. I would have loved to have done deep in my heart but it's the best thing for my health. It's the best thing for my family. It's the best thing for them because I'm not going to do it half-assed. So it was just this kind of process of, okay, hold my crying pillow and just move on. Um, and then the last thing I want to talk about, because it'll, I think, segue us into the questions for Nicole. But before you because do, I, can I oh, just yes, talk about go. when you're talking about uh, you have other commitments. And I think there's this idea, Meg, you and I were talking when we were at Austin, we just took a walk and it's sort of um, knowing when to say yes to things, which is different than knowing when to say no to things, mm. right? And I think that's... Um, such a powerful choice to make um, because sometimes we really want to do something, but we have other commitments or it's just not right for us at the time. And it's just sorting through what we have the capacity for to really commit to. Cause I think we, we've all here, all of us here on the show and so many of our listeners have found ourselves in a position where we've just said yes to too many things. And then you're stressed and overwhelmed and not getting enough done of each thing, like in our lives, not just writing, right? You can overcommit so easily because you feel like you have to, you don't want to disappoint so many people, right? And you want to make your mark and you want to move ahead and you want to prove yourself, but it's so dangerous because then you end up not delivering to your maximum potential on one of, on something that matters on any of them. Yeah. So, and to the people, then to the people, the project I'm already committed to, like, I can't yes. do that to that project and those characters. Okay. Forget about the people involved who I have a commitment to and care about, but it's also to the characters. Like mm-hmm. I can't do that to that, those characters. I can't give them less because all of a sudden my mind is distracted by the research I would have to do for this other project. You know, it was just so big. It was so big that, um, and sometimes you say yes to things, but you have to really sit down for a moment and be like, what does that yes mean? It means tons of research. It means this is the time clock. Look at the calendar. Like it means who's, you know, it's just all of the elements of getting real about that yes <laughs> is yeah, what yeah. I had to do because my head my lip was like, oh, and I was, you know, projecting forward into all the fantasticness of the project and, you know, it'll be a go TV show and blah, 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 blah. You know, and it's such candy, right? Yeah. But it's like, okay, but what can I really give at my highest level? Yeah. I think that's a really important lesson too, just because like I, w- one of the things that really stuck with me um, was a few years ago, I was, uh, you know, a mentor at Sundance. I'm, I'm one of the creative advisors and the late great Audrey Wells um, mm. was a, a uh, advisor there too. Um, and we overlapped for a couple of years. 
And um, she, and then she was like, what are you working on? And I was like, oh God, like I've got all these things. I've stacked myself. Like I, I'm like four deep right now. And, and they're all in different stages. So maybe that's okay. And, and she was like, she was like, you look really stressed out. And, and she's like, and you're not talking about these projects with any joy. And she said, you know, you're, you're um, it's in everybody else's interest except yours to stack you, um, you know, but you, you're not gonna do your best work that way. And the worst thing is, is it might burn you out and it might make you not wanna write anymore. Um, because like, if you have a lot of, if, you, if you're stacked so deep on a, on a bunch of projects, you're not gonna do your best work. You're gonna have bad experiences because you didn't do your best work, but also because the more people you interact with, the likelihood that you're gonna have a toxic personality is much higher um, with the more people you work with at one time. And, and it might very well make you hate what you get to do for a living, which is a blessing that we get to do something so creative. And, and it really stuck with me. Um, and, it, and it kind of has shaped my, my um, career philosophy for the last couple of years is just like, you know, you get candy. Candy is a great way of putting it is, is we're lucky enough that we get offered these things, which seem, you know, whether they're based on IP that we love or whether there's like a, just a story nugget that you see in there and you're like, oh, I could knock that out of the park. But if you're already, if you, if you know that you're going to be you know, layered into the future, you're going to be letting yourself down, letting down the people you're working for right now and possibly letting down that project. And it just leads to a lot of stress. I, mean, I know a lot of people who can do it, um, but I've, I've come to realize that I don't, I don't work best. I don't do my best well, work and I, that way. And I, I realized I don't do my best work that way. And again, they, you know, part of it was like, they have to wait legally because I am, but even waiting, there was an expectation of doing research and get like, it was just not going to be able, I was just not going to be able to do it. And it was also kind of facing, well, yeah, I might be able to physically do it, but that means I'm not with my kids on a Saturday hmm. and, and I'm not with my husband and I'm not going to be able to go on that girlfriend trip that I was planning. And, you know, like there's also quality of life. So again, high class problem, because for emerging writers, you're like, I would take any job. But then I also want to be like, why would you don't take any job? You have to take a job that, you know, you can do super well, knock out of the park. You know I mean? You just have to be careful. Um, all right. So my craft question, which leads us into our interview with the great Nicole Roman. So um, I am working, yes, it's all about me, on an ensemble movie, and I'm really s slowing it down for a moment to just go back. And it's not like I didn't watch ensemble movies in the past, but I'm, I'm, I'm bumping into some logistics of ensemble movies and wait, how does this work? You know, kind of stuff like literally like it's a, if it's math or an engine, like wait. So I'm going back and watching movies again and, and thinking again. And so when you worked on Guardians, like there's different ensemble movies, right? Like some ensemble movies like Jumanji, it really is from multiple points of view. You meet all of them just like Breakfast Club and see all their days and how they all got into detention. Mm -hmm. And you set up all of their um, you know, flaws so that when they get into their avatars, you see why they got chose that avatar because that avatar is going to teach them blah, blah, blah. But then there's Guardians, which is more of a lead in an ensemble. We only meet him really first. I mean, I guess we meet Gamora too, but really, he, I mean, am I wrong? He feels no. like a lead with ensemble around him. Definitely. More, more Dorothy, shall we say, mm -hmm. of Wizard of Oz. Um, can you tell me a little bit, <laughs> this is going to be, how do I do this? <laughs> Which is my question. That's my real honest question. Oh. But no, okay. But the real question is in creating the structure of an ensemble film with a lead, mm -hmm. was there any insights or anything you learned in doing that 
or what was the trickiest part or I don't know anything. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, with, with, uh, with guardians, there were, there were like a dozen guardians to choose from, you know, there were so many, um, there in the comics, there are a lot of, of guardians, um, and not all of them obviously were used in the first movie. So, um, a big part of it was choosing which characters and why, and, you know, how they played off each other. That was the first thing like Peter Quill, when I came onto that project. So I, I, was the um, I sort of dug it out of the slush pile at Marvel and um, the comic uh, the um, the Dan Abnett Andy Lanning comic which was really fantastic um, that version of Guardians um, had Nova and had Peter Quill but it was a different version of Peter Quill and you know the, the version from the comics he was very you know he he had accidentally killed a lot of people and this you know sort of mistaken thing that he had done this this gambit and he was a very serious character he wasn't like a, a Han Solo-esque character so so my big thing was all right you know we need a character who is light more light-hearted more of a rogue more of a scoundrel um and uh you know this is a, a group of, of sort of uh, misfits who come together and so the first big thing I did was figure out who my protagonist was and then once I had a sense of who I wanted Peter Quill to be in terms of having him be a you know antiquities smuggler and have him you know be this kind of like you know, grown up kid who had like a, a sort of sad vulnerability that he covered up with humor and, you know, being a goof off. Um, you know, once I had that, I was able to sort of go through the comics and say, which, which characters are gonna play off of him the best for this, this team and what do they have in common? And so, um, you know, Drax has in the comics a slightly different backstory than he does in the movie, but he also had a, a, a loss, you know, he, he lost his, his family. Um, and Quill obviously has a new family in the form of the Ravagers, but they're kind of a bad family. <laughs> but uh, but he's looking for family too. And Rocket actually has a pretty um, dark past, and and he's been hurt badly. And so you know, bringing him in was was a uh, was a choice about like you know this is a character who is um, you know foul mouthed and he's rough rough and ready, and he he seems like he's he's the one who's most likely to attack you, but he's also the one that's sort of hurting the most. Mm -hmm. um and uh and Gamora obviously with her family issues with Thanos and with her sister so there's um there is I think that was the the thing that really made me want to bring those characters in uh rather than uh you know like necessarily bringing in uh Adam Warlock or Quasar or any of these other characters who were in the um uh the run of Annihilation comics and all the comics that I was being exposed to uh, first off with the Guardians. So, so I would say that in terms of the ensemble element, I really started with my protagonist and, and tried to figure who would be the most supportive, who, who, were, who were different enough from him. Of course, it's different because I'm, you know, choosing characters from like an established, right. uh, you know, work of, of, of comics, but, um, but I was able to change them as I needed to, which was really a, a wonderful, um, and did, so did you start knowing that each of them would have an arc or it, was it more important that Peter had his arc or, and like, were you tracking them as a group all the I way was, through and how it yeah. was shifting? I was tracking them as a group because it, it's really the origin story of a team more than an origin story of, you know, Star-Lord. Um, because honestly, Star-Lord doesn't even fully understand his, you know, superhero powers until, right. you know, until this like later on in the second movie. But um 
the so it was really much it was really about this team coming together it's not called you know peter quill and the guardians of the galaxy it's just guardians of the galaxy so even though he is the lead and he is the the way in he's the human so of course we're immediately going to um immediately connect with him as our as our main character uh it, it was it was sort of about this group of people who if they hadn't found each other would have been lost right? so you started with uh the main character and then the theme right? This yeah. sort of finding family, and then they all are on different journeys in that same theme. Right, exactly. And, and sort of they all have this, this sort of sore spot in their, um, in their histories, which is a very like, you know, it's a very Marvel Comics thing. Shared, but I think it's, would you say it was shared trauma? Shared trauma, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, there are different forms of it, but it's, it is right. all about like everybody wants to be loved, right? Like that's a very relatable thing. And um, these are all people who have been hurt or have had or have lost the people who loved them and so um or have been called a freak or have been you know forcibly altered against their will i mean i i would say in terms of groot maybe maybe not so much for groot is more like a he's more like a golden retriever right, right, right. <laughs> like a smart golden retriever i sometimes i think golden retrievers are smarter than all of us but it is uh it, it is a um it is very much a story of the of the team coming together but in terms of picking them like i i, I picked them based on how they would be foils to each other, how they would play off Quill and how they would all have something that would draw them to each other. Were you concerned about uh, fans' reactions to you changing characters? Well, you know, what's funny is when I was working on it, I didn't think it was going to get made. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I was like, permission to go. they were like, whatever. Yeah. They're like, yeah, sure. You can do that weird comic if you want like they, they were you know they didn't denigrate the comic but they were just kind of like yeah I mean you know they were still doing Iron Man 2 when I was working on on this they were shooting Iron Man 2 um and then Thor um but it was you know I worked on it for two and a half years and so during that time period I think they started to be like oh hey you know this this uh this could work and especially because Thor started to get into some of the sci-fi elements um a bit like it was magic and, and fantasy but they were they were starting to get into the stars a bit there and I think they were like oh okay this seems like the next logical place to go um so I was I was frankly pretty surprised that they were cool with you know me insisting on the the talking raccoon being in the movie um my my parents you know they had no idea what i was doing um do they ever though there. do our parents yeah. know what we're doing <laughs> yeah but they, they um they were they were apparently rehearsing their um consolation speech to me because they thought the movie was going to bomb because they're like why would anybody want to go see a movie with a talking raccoon in it and so <laughs> you know that isn't for kids like for little kids and so they were like totally prepared to be like it's okay honey <laughs> we're sure your next one will be good <laughs> that's sweet in a way yeah there is part of me that like i mean guardians is one of my favorites in the whole franchise because it's so i mean this is a compliment it's so weird and offbeat and fun and warm but like there is part of me did you wonder if it was going to be a hit when like you saw on paper what it was yeah. and what it was becoming and yeah no it was um I think there's always kind of a moment of terror um when you watch the in process film I mean if, when, when I went on set it was really cool like being being in London and like seeing the sets and seeing the spaceships and seeing the performances which were amazing um that was like yes this is literally I'm like Oscar speech you know <laughs> But, uh, but then, um, but then when we watch, you know, when you watch your first, the, the first assembly, uh, it's rough. 
especially when like the, uh, you know, the music's not there, they have temp music and the, the sound is rough and the, uh, you know, like, it, it, and it feels a little bit off. The timing of the jokes feels off and you're like, oh no, like, is this gonna, is this gonna work? And of course that was before I was really directing. And so I didn't understand like how much refining happens in the, in the editing room and how, how just like all that comic timing, I mean, they're very much the performer, but it's also like setting it in just the right way and getting it just, you know, perfect. And then, um, you know, when it, when it premiered, I was, I was like shaking with happiness. So, (laughs) I mean, we've got a lot of questions about how you got into the business. Um, and you know, it, I think a lot of emerging writers want to know those things because it's like, is there a secret? And of course, everybody's live is completely different. Um, but do you want to talk to them about any, any insights you had in terms of getting into the business or? Yeah, um, yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, so I didn't know anybody. I'm not related to uh, like Rhea Perlman or Ron Perlman. People always ask me that. I'm like, I wish I was. I wish I was related to Ron Perlman. Uh, we have the same forehead, but uh, we are not the same person. Um the uh, the way I got in was I wrote a script. I did go to I did go to film school, um, and while I was in film school, I wrote a script about a scientist that I loved. Um, and maybe because it was back then a bit surprising, which is silly, but it was a little surprising that um, you know to to these random people who are the decision makers that it, that a, a woman was writing about science. Um, they, it got a little bit more attention, I think, than it maybe would have necessarily. Um, and so I, I w- it won a bunch of contests and, uh, and honestly, that didn't do anything for me because <laughs> it wasn't like the nickels or, or anything. It was just, you know, smaller contests, but what it did do is I got this little blurb written about me in script magazine, just like, isn't it crazy that she's won contests about writing about science? And, uh, and off of that, I got my first job. Uh, I got hired by an independent, um, an independent uh, film producer to write a um, kind of like an X prize, you know, race to the race to the moon in, you know, using real technology. You know, this is all long before SpaceX or any of that was, was going on. And, and just sort of like, what would that look like? Um, since I was pretty involved in the space world at that point, I, I was, I was like a huge space nerd. So, so that was my first job that I got paid for. And what was interesting was I, I didn't have an agent and I didn't have, um, I wasn't in the guild uh, and that was not a guild job. But after I signed my, my uh, contract, which was for like, you know, the most money I had ever seen, which was like a, a very, very small amount of money. <laughs> But, you know, I was working like three jobs in New York and I was like, oh my God, um, that as soon as I signed my contract, they were like, hey, just FYI, we totally screwed you on this contract. And if you had had an agent, you would have done much better for yourself. And because we feel badly about that, we're going to introduce you to um, like a baby agent we know who was at Paradigm at the time. So I was like, okay, sweet. So I met my first agent who then eventually went to CIA. And, uh, and he started getting me work. Um, and so that was how I broke in, um, was, was through this sort of like, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, getting, getting kind of screwed on, on the, uh, on the first job that led to my, my, uh, my relationship. But I, I love that because it has the two elements that I hear most often. One is you wrote something based because you loved it. Like you were a nerd, you were a nerd about science. And so this love you have of another, you know, pot boil in your life feeds that script. So it has specificity, it has passion. Of course, it's going to rise out, right? Because it's something you love. And then you're also a moment of being screwed and you just have to, 
everybody kind of gets screwed in the beginning and yeah. not everybody, <laughs> but a lot of people, right? Because that's just the nature of the business and you got to move on. You just got to yeah. see the good in it. What'd you get from it? You know, you got you something and just totally. move on. So I, I, have, I do love that. I have no bad feelings about that. It was actually a really, um, it was the best possible thing they could have done for me. So. I'm so curious though about that conversation. Like, hey, uh, yeah. so <laughs> thanks for the document. Yeah. Uh, like, guess what happened? Yeah. No, they were really like, they were like, hey, I'm so glad that the paperwork's done. By the way, we screwed you, but, you know, but good news. <laughs> and I wasn't mad because I was like, well, what? it's not like other people were beating down my door. I was working at a temp agency. I was like, I was making glass beads. I was like, I was like teaching people how to make glass beads as one of my part-time jobs. At, Ooh, you know, I want Brooklyn. to learn to do that. I can teach you. <laughs> side hustle. My side, side hustle. That's my, yeah. that's my fallback job. I'll teach you how to do <laughs> lamp work to bead making in Brooklyn. So I did that for a number of years. And, and I also was a, as a personal assistant to a felon and I was working as a, at a temp agency. So, okay, so this is the TV show I want next. <laughs> you, personal assistant to a felon. Personal assistant yeah. to a felon. At night yeah. you're making beads, you're teaching bead making. Mm-hmm. You have these three jobs yeah. and you're just hustling. That's the next TV I show. I just want to see I'm a personal assistant to a felon. Oh, she, and, <laughs> Let's and talk she, about that. She also used to have these nudist dance parties at her house. Oh my. The, the, the show is getting, it's like, show's no getting better and better. You, you, mean, like, better you know better. who used to come to them was Helen Gurley Brown. <gasps> What? Girly Brown. Yeah, she was friends with my look. Employer. It's a period piece. Yeah. <laughs> it's got drama. You got celebrity. You got grit. You got humor. Yeah. You got making darkness. dance parties. Yeah. I I'm sold. I'm watching this show. It was amazing. So, <laughs> I have so many stories. One day. <laughs> a broader craft question that came in that I think, um, especially for our emerging writers, would be great to answer is, you know do you have a process for not forsaking character development when you're writing action in mm. terms of it, how does that action externalize the internal? Is there mm. anything that you think about or in terms of those choices? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough, right? Like I, I try to have my action be an expression of character or, you know, of character and of, of what this particular character would choose in that moment. Like, you know, what, how do you, how do you take something that could feel very meat and potatoes and try to make it, um, you know, surprising or revealing or funny. Um, and that that's tough because like, you know, you sort of have, you have whatever is in your mezzanine, sin, you know, whatever is in, whatever is in front of you. Like if you, you know, how can you make a fight at a vegan restaurant funny, you know, or whatever, you know, funny or, or revealing or um, surprising. Cause I think we've, we've seen um, so many beats already. And it's sort of like, what is specific about this character that um, they are going to, Re, they're going to like, what's the thing that triggers them? Like, what is the thing that makes them want to throw that first punch? Like that's, that can be very revealing. What if they don't throw the punch? What does that reveal about them? You know, I think that, that trying to look at action as, um, as a way to delve deeper into character in a way that dialogue wouldn't necessarily allow you to, um, is, is really the, the great challenge there. I have a similar question that came in from Kara that I'm really interested in. I mean, for me personally, I love Guardians of the Galaxy um, because it, I mean, I like the Marvel universe. My husband is a huge Marvel fan. We watch them all. But this one particularly felt so much more accessible to me because of the humor, right? And it just felt um, more inviting to me in a way. Um, and so Kara's asking, what do you think are the keys to balancing 
action with humor, mm. right? And how you can, um, like the stakes keep rising, but you're still like jokes, funny, you mm. know, you're, but you, they're not undercutting the stakes. Right. Right. Yeah. Which is, so I can feel like I'm on the journey, but I also feel like there's a wink and a, no, come on, come on. It's okay. You know, we're, we're not changing the tone midway through. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a really good question. I I'm dealing with that a little bit on this, this, uh, pilot that I just wrote, which has, um, which, which is a, which has horror in it. It's got like a lot of really scary things that happen. And, um, and it's, it's also kind of about anxiety deep down. Cause that's something I definitely relate to. Um, it's about fear. And so it's got all these heavy things, you know, it's got like conspiracies, it's got monsters and it's got all this great stuff, but I'm like, well, I'm also somebody who deals with this stuff with humor. Um, but I don't want it to be something that undercuts or undermines the serious of what's happening because um you know i think i think it is it is one thing if you're making something that's kind of campy and you're like you know waka waka like that's one thing but i think like having somebody be on board for what is supposed to be a grounded uh set piece or grounded horror and then having them make like arnie style jokes uh can be can feel really forced and so i try again i just try to like root it in character it's it's like my character and my pilot is somebody who's, who's really plucky and she's, she's been through a lot of real world stuff that has nothing to do with monsters that she's seen that like humans can be a lot worse than monsters. And so I think, you know, as much as she's experiencing her fear, <clears throat> she will have uh, reactions that are, um, that feel very human and feel very much like something she would say or do. Uh, so it's not for the joke. It's sort of giving your, your character an opportunity to sort of process the trauma or the anger or the whatever in a way that that if your character is genuinely somebody who is who goes to humor when times get tough then it's like a it, it won't feel forced it won't undermine the character as long as it's that foundation has been laid in advance that that's how she deals with or he deals with uh you know trauma or conflict or action um is is to is to have a, a humorous outlook i mean deadpool for example is a character who like you know that no matter what happens he's gonna have a funny quip for it but if you're not writing a uh you know a, a superhero like deadpool if you're writing something very grounded um, you know, you just got to make sure that this doesn't feel like it's coming out of nowhere. And I think, I think, you know, I'm a huge fan of horror movies and I love horror movies that have, that have humor in it. Um, and I think it's just a great release for a very tense scene. Um, and it's just a question of when you want to release that tension. You don't want to release it too early or else like, you know, people might, you know, might not be as tense. You want them on the edge of their seat, like whether it's a car chase or whether it's a someone, you know, running away from a murderer or whatever it is, like you want to make sure you time your, your release of your pressure uh, at the right moment. So good. We had a lot of Captain Marvel questions. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you can answer those ones. <laughs> <You can laughs> no, we want to hear from your point of view. <laughs> okay. um, well, they asked about how we, you know, how we got teamed up in terms of having, you know, we pitched different things, obviously, to Marvel, and then they teamed us up in terms of, you know, once we got together, what, how did we start, you know, and part of me is like, God, that was a long time ago. Happened? How did we start? Who are you? I, <laughs> Who am I? I don't know. <laughs> I remember that what I loved about it, though, is we didn't kind of have a battle of the wills no. of I pitched this and you pitched that. It literally was like very interested in each other and what you pitched and being inspired by it. Like, we didn't ever have that kind of like, well, best pitch wins kind of, no, you know, face all. off. 
it was, it was a great, I mean, I feel like I got the best end of the bargain there. I was like, I was just like taking notes, everything Meg said. I was like, oh, that's really smart. <laughs> no, 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 I'm serious. <laughs> did you guys, did you guys know each other before you got paired no. up? No, we went and had a cup of tea together to make sure that this could even work. I mean, Marvel was very respectful of that. Yeah. They're like, you know, hang out with each other and see if it's a click. And it, for me, it was immediate. Yeah. I just loved her. And I was like, please put me in a room Aww, with Nicole Perlman. So and we did a lot of research. I remember we did a lot of whiteboarding uh, and uh, I remember, a lot of research. I remember we talked a lot about what we wanted the movie to actually be about. And um, I think we both agreed that we didn't want it to be a um, origin of somebody who goes from having no powers to having powers. And that it was like, it wasn't enough that it was just about like, here's the super strongest character in the Marvel universe so far. Like, like I think that we both immediately were not um, excited by that. And that what, and so it's like, well, what do, what does excite us? What themes are we exploring uh, in life right now? And I remember we talked about things like identity and betrayal and thinking you were right about something only to be proven wrong. Um, I remember that was a big conversation and about failure and about what it actually means to be strong and powerful, which I think really made it into the movie. I and then specifically about women and failure and that women are taught not to fail. And so how do you ever embrace your full power? And, um, and we had a lot of talks about that the AI needed to be female yeah. because it's, this isn't just a women are great and men suck movie, Like you're not going to do that. Yeah. Like this is a much deeper human movie. Yeah meaning men and women can tell you that you're powerless without them. It's not, yeah. that's not a gender specific um, thing. And, and I also remember, um, you know, <laughs> having to go in and be like, how about this? How about this? And just, you know, it was a lot of iteration. Yeah. It's a lot of iteration and you have to be, and th that we both enjoyed that iterative process of go again, go again, yeah. um, try this, try that. Lots of, lots of sampling um, and the other question that came in, which I do remember a lot from Haley was about the pressure of, of her being the first female to get her own movie. Yeah. And I do remember, I remember I brought it up all the time because mm -hmm. any, and, and finally, I remember one day, Nicole, you were like, we just have to forget this. Like, we, can, it's, <laughs> we just have to not think about this anymore. Cause, and I think it was you who said, look at, look at, look at the Avengers, any of those storylines, if we give them to her people, someone's going to be mad yeah. about it. Right. Like. Oh, she just really wants to go home and be with her family. Mm -hmm. Oh, she, you know, whatever. And so we, at some point, as much as we're thinking about it, it also can't be the center of the movie right. that she's female. Yeah. Do you remember that? I do. Thing? I do. I remember thinking like, if you had made Iron Man from the beginning and it was, uh, if it was Pepper Potts, or if it was a woman from the beginning in the Iron Man suit, they'd be like, well, she's, you're saying that women can only get their powers from what they're wearing and you know it was like it was like oh god you know and so it was a little bit but, but I think it was good in that it really forced us to um you know interrogate what 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 was the most um true and authentic but also sort of refreshing and powerful thing we could say with this movie um and and I think the um the resilience and the idea of what what is what is failure what is what does that do I mean and also like the, the not just failure but also like the the compassion that is such a part of being human and like your humanity being what gives you strength not just uh, how much, you know, how hard you can punch something and she, she can punch planets or whatever. Like she, it's not, that, that is not why she is strong. And I think, I think that that, once we had that feeling about what, this is what the movie was going to be about, um, you know, I felt like we had, had done something really good. 
Well, I want to thank both of you for the work you did in creating the emotional spine of this movie. It meant a lot to me. Well, I'm fangirling. <laughs> it meant a lot to me as a woman, as a mother of a daughter, that some of the things that I saw in that movie, the conversations that were going on in it and outside of it were really important, like just really important, just what you're talking about resilience, right? I think the world is built in a way that we do have to be resilient, unfortunately, right? But that it is something that, you know, we have to do, right? And so that we can take power from that too, right? We don't have to be victims. And I, I just, uh, so thank you both. Oh, well, thank you. Well, and the thing that I'm still saying to friends that I just really, we, de we delved into in doing that together was who's telling you you're not powerful? Mm. Where is that coming from? This belief that you are not powerful. Mm. You know, I remember Nicole sitting in front of that whiteboard and we're like, all she's got to do at the time it was cuffs. And we were like, oh. all she's got to do is take the cuffs off. <laughs> like literally just take them off because, but she's believing all the narratives that are coming at her about her power and who she is mm. until finally she makes her own, she, she realizes the authenticity and her own power based from her own narrative. And then all of that doesn't have effect on her yeah. anymore because she just take it off. Like, and I'm still talking to women friends about this. I feel it's so important for women. Mm -hmm. And I also want to say, and I'm sure Nicole, you agree that Geneva and the directors, mm -hmm. you know, we did this bubbling yeah. river, right? It's their movie. It's their, like yeah. they took it totally. and just, it's their movie. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I've, I've thanked them brilliant. too. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just saying yeah, like, yeah. it's, it's such a collaborative, like we, we started it, but it's there. They are amazing. Right. They did an amazing, yeah, they amazing. Did. They did. And Geneva's one of my best friends. And it was like, it was so, it was so wonderful to see her just like take that character and take it to the stars. So um, yeah, no, it was, it was definitely like a, a very positive group uh, experience for a lot of these, a lot of these um, movies, you know, it can be traumatic, the handoff that it wasn't in this situation. We have some questions about the slows. Mm. I'm gonna jump to that. Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> Who saw it? <laughs> it was in a bunch of film festivals, but I, I you know, it's one of. Those. Well, Jeff saw it. So Jeff, you. Thanks, one of Jeff. these questions is one of them is from Jeff. So I'm not going to ask it. You asked. We were emailing a bit about this, Nicole, but mm -hmm. I'm in post right now for something I directed this summer. It's a super micro budget feature, but the only reason I ended up directing it was because I feel like I had to climb through these weeds of speaking of what we believe and what we're told. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's kind of this tacit thing in our business that like writers aren't entitled to direct. Mm -hmm. They're not good enough. They don't have this special thing that directors have. Like mm -hmm. instead they should like sit down and just write and then hand it off to the magical superpower director who's going to make it. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know. I kind of, just decided that I didn't believe that and I wanted to give it a shot. Um, and I'm happy I did now that I'm in post. I feel like the voice is right because I chose to do it. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering like how that journey was for you and what your whole perspective on like the writers shouldn't direct or can't direct myth is, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's an interesting one. Yeah, I've definitely, I've definitely encountered that a lot. And it's funny because like writers are in charge of the TV, TV series. I mean, they're like the big wigs in TV and like the directors, you know, they, they might set some of the visuals and like get the performances and do a lot of things with cast. But honestly, it's mostly like the showrunners world for television. So it, it is interesting to hear in feature how, in features, how much, um, sort of distrust there is for writers directing. Um, you know, I went to film school. I did a double major in, in filmmaking and in dramatic writing. Uh, and 
I think it definitely helped my writing to, to do the directing program at NYU. But I will say that I just didn't have any money. Like I had no money at NYU and I didn't have any connections. And so it was like, where am I going to shoot? Like, <laughs> you know, I'm not a great producer in that, in that independent film way. Like, you know, I do a lot of creative producing, but I'm not the kind of person who's going to like, you know, be, when I'm, when I'm 18, be able to chase down like a laundromat to shoot in, in, in the Bronx. Like I, that's, that wasn't really my thing. I'm kind of an introvert. Um, you know, I, I like to be, you know, in my room typing. And I think that that people take that and they're like, oh, well, they're not going to be good on set. But I actually kind of feel like it's the opposite because it's not just about the story. It's also about having empathy for the characters and like deeply understanding those characters. And that doesn't mean that people who don't write can't understand the characters. But I do feel like when you are trying to get a performance from an actor, um, so much of it uses my writer's brain to, to get to that performance because you have to give them cues that are action cues that are that are telling them things using your words. <laughs> you're not acting for them, but you're using your words to say like, okay, imagine this. Imagine that person has just slapped your best friend, and this is the this is your chance to to tell them off. Like or 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 like you're piercing them with your eyes right now. You know, you're you're sticking them to the wall. Like you have to like really think fast on your feet. You have to think about what the character would do, and um, and I think all of that is very is something that writers tend to have uh, an innate sense of of words springing to mind quickly and eloquently to get their point across. So I do feel that, you know, I think actors make great directors for a similar reason in terms of um, performance for sure. But uh, I think that actors don't get enough credit for the fact that even though they might be off in their room writing a lot, it doesn't mean that they're not gonna be great on set. Um, and also I think that there's, you know, like filmmaking is like quilt making in a sense, it's like quilt making. And, and so you really, you really need to know how all the pieces fit together. Uh, and I can't tell you how many times like people who aren't writers who are shooting somebody else's script will be like, oh, we don't need that scene. But it's like, yeah, you totally need that scene or you're going to be screwed later on. <laughs> but if they're not thinking about the whole story, um, you know, you, you, uh, you can, you can really lose some of your, your, uh, emotional power. Uh, another reason I think writers are, are great is that, I mean, most writers love other, just love working collaboratively. You know, as much as I'm, I'm a, an introvert, there's like almost no joy that I get more than working in a group on a group project, you know, where we're all like on the slows that was, I, I literally was crying tears of happiness on my first day on that, on that shoot. And I had had, I'd had, um, I actually had some really mean agents try to talk me out of directing. Um, and people at my own agency, by the way, who, which I left uh, partially as a result of this, that were like, why would you want it? Like, you're a writer, you don't need to direct. And, and they would, they said, um, you know, uh, Steven Spielberg cried every day on, on his shoot of, uh, of Jaws, and he went into his crying boat. And it was a boat that was just for him to cry in. And you're going to be crying, crying every day. Boat. That was Spielberg. <laughs> so imagine how you're going to feel. And I was like, oh, my uh, God, my own agency uh, is like trying to talk me out of this. Um, Thing. I'm gasping. No, seriously. Actually, I, oh. I, it was it was a woman who said this to me. It was I mean, I find it particularly offensive. That's like if that was Spielberg, yeah. but imagine you. Yeah, yeah. And she said, uh, I remember she said, um, she said, if you don't wake up every day and say, if I don't direct my movie, I'm going to roll over and die, then you're not a real director, and you should just stick to writing. 
I was like, well, lady, like, you know, I, at that point I was like 36 or something. And I was like, I'm 36 years old. And clearly I haven't rolled over and died yet. I'm like, but I went to film school. Like I, I, I got into two prestigious filmmaking fellowships, which I've completed. Like I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I already have the money to make my movie. Like, why are you, why are you trying why? to talk me out of because, because they want you to go make money, maybe in a row. Exactly. Yeah. I, want, I think oh, this is such an important conversation and I know we don't have much time left, but like you really have to know yourself yeah. and be able to like stand up to people who are trying to tell you who you are. Yeah. You get to decide who you are. Yes. Listen to smart people that you respect. Right. But like, yeah. you know who you are. And she's yeah. literally telling you what your power base is. Yeah. She's literally saying, I don't think you have the power base to be a director because you're no Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Right. And even he ha- found it hard. So yeah. please bring your power base back to me mm-hmm. so that I can make money. Like, yeah. Be very, mm-hmm. very suspicious of anybody undermining your power. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in an ego way. I mean, in your ability to have agency in the world and do what you want to do. Yeah. Oh, and and honestly, I was crying on my first day because I was so happy. I Aww. had like an amazing, amazing, like, producers, I don't amazing need cast. A crying boat. Yeah, I was like, my boat is happy tears. Like it was, it was fabulous. <laughs> but I need a bigger like, boat, but this one's for happy. And I was also just like a relief to be like, okay, good. I trusted my gut and my gut was right. You know, this is what I want to do. So that, that was, um, that was a very big realization moment for me. Yeah. I've had, I've had reps uh, advise me, not my reps, but like when I was out trying to find a new one who were just like, dump this project, this is not for you. And you know, it's in development now. I, <laughs> you know, I'm going to get the green light any minute, but you know, it's like, what do you know? You don't know totally. what you know, the irony about the whole conversation too, is I'm a pretty emotional person too. And I felt like <laughs> I was crying every day on set. Part yeah. of it, it's, it's a, it's an emotional movie about grief. So that was part of it. But of course, like the first day you're seeing your actors on take one, I'm like weeping. And my actor's like, What's <laughs> to me, that was such I a, that it. was like, I feel like a superpower I had on set was vulnerability. Like it's this irony that I think people think being a director means being like a bullheaded dick. And like, yeah. really it's, I think about being like vulnerable and sharing what you're fears and vulnerabilities are because then your actors all of a sudden they're crying and then all of a sudden you have this amazing take so I just like the culture around directing is so weird to me especially in features mm-hmm. and if, if you have someone telling you that you're too emotional to direct to me that's probably a great indication that you're going to be a great director so yeah. that's my TED talk yeah I mean I think I think there's just this idea that like nice they're like oh you're nice and it's like well I'm nice but people people always find out like I had a I had somebody tell me recently who was like, he was like, you know, the, the thing is, is people think that you're just nice. They don't realize that like, you're also a tough, you're a tough motherfucker. <laughs> yes, you are. For you. And I'm, like, I'm very nice. And then people underestimate me and then they're like, oh. <laughs> so, and you can and be both. Was, and you're oh, both. Yeah, yeah. You're nice and a tough mo- motherfucker. I'm a, I'm a little bit on. of both sometimes. It's tricky for women in positions. It's, 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 it's tough. tricky because if you're too nice, you know, too kind, people think, oh, I can take advantage. They are over familiar. And then you have to unwind that, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's tricky. tricky. And so then the impulse then is, all right, I'm just going to show up and be a, a, a dick. Yeah. No, never, really never like want to do that. Draw yeah. the line. And so it's like, where's that place in the middle? Yeah. I mean, it's hard. I think it's, it's just, I think about standing up for other people like that, that is, it's really easy for me to stand up for other people. Um, like I'll take a lot of abuse if it helps me get my movie made, but I won't let other people be abused. And that's, um, I think that it's really like, I've, I've, I've quit productions. I've, I've quit things where I'm like, other people are being hurt 
and, uh, and I'm not going to screw that person over. And that is just a hard line for me. And, and I think that in a weird way that has allowed me to stand up for myself better, just knowing mm. that I have the ability to stand up for other people. That's great. Oh, That's I good. love that. Can we just all keep right. talking all day? We, I know we can keep talking, but we're going to, we're going to wrap it up. We, we're we going to end with three questions. We ask every guest. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll start. What brings you the most joy when it comes to writing? Oh, so I have to answer this. Yes. Yes. This <laughs> is your the most joy. Um, okay. The most joy, uh, what gives me the most joy when it comes to writing? I would say, you know, when, when people come up to me in the bathroom, if I've written something that, that has resonated with people and like, I'm in the bathroom, this is so weird. I don't know what's always in the bathroom, but like women come up to me and they'll be like, they'll be like, oh, that thing that you did that spoke to me because I'm going through that too. And I don't know why that, that to me feels like it's like putting a message in a bottle and you're, you spend all this time crafting the message and putting it in the bottle. And then you just sort of throw it to the universe. And like, you know, sometimes it goes out to a lot of people cause it's a blockbuster. And sometimes it goes out to like just a few people at a festival, but knowing that it, that it landed with somebody is like a thousand times better than any, you know, any other kind of kudos for me. So that, that, that is my favorite part of writing is when I feel like it actually reaches somebody. Love that. Lovely. All right. Now it's my turn. This is my style of question. <laughs> what pisses you off about writing? Uh, about writing or about the industry? Let's you say less. Let's, yeah. but oh, either one. Yeah. Either one. <laughs> either one. Um, what pisses me off about writing? Well, I think, I think that sometimes it's, it's really hard to know how long something's going to take. Um, that, that is hard because I'm, I'm somebody who really likes to Tetris my schedule, just so that I make sure I have time to do the things I want to do. And, uh, you know, I like to really have a, I try to have a sense of like, you know, maybe it's a control element for me or, or something, but I like to know like, all right, I'm going to get this done in 12 weeks and then we'll have a two week reading period. And then I'll come back and I'll have six weeks for notes, but it's never that way. It's never that way. Like sometimes it, it's a good way in which I had scheduled, you know, several weeks of rewrites before it went into the studio on this pilot. And now we didn't have that period. So I can like slot other things in, but I will say that I, I, I wish I had more sense of like what I literally have no idea what 2022 is going to look like it could be me shooting a movie in Puerto Rico or it could be me doing this tv show in London or it could be me like having 100% free time and starting new projects like I I have absolutely no idea so I think that's the thing I don't like about about writing is just how much uncertainty there is with with your life I feel that deeply I feel that yeah. All right, Jeff, you get to last ask the last question. Yes, uh, Nicole, if there's one scene that you've written that you could be remembered for, what would that scene be? Oh, Lord. <laughs> God, that's a hard one. Um, I mean, I really, I mean, I love, I love the slows because it's very personal to me and I, and I directed it. So I guess I feel more, I feel more like it's a hundred percent my vision. So I, I really love the, um, the birth scene in the slows. Um, but, uh, in terms of like something I, I feel really proud about that will probably be remembered by a lot more people. I, I really love the, um, the scene where Groot protects his friends with his cocoon of branches as they're sort of plummeting towards the planet. That one I think is, um, that one is, is, is something that I feel like is very representative of my feelings of wanting to protect my community. So um, that I guess would be, would be the one I'd want to be remembered for if I got hit by a meteor right now. <laughs> I wept. I was like, how is it possible that like a visually animated tree is making me weep in the theater? <laughs> so that just speaks to how beautifully written that scene is. So beautiful, yeah. totally. 
Nicole, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Oh, well, thank, thank you for you. having me. It's always wonderful to see you. And um, this is really, really fun. And uh, I, uh, I'm glad that we were able to make it work. So thank you for inviting me. Oh, thank you. And thank you. Thanks everyone for tuning in. And if you haven't yet, join our Facebook group. And this is hard for me to ask, but check out our Patreon. And buy a mug. <laughs> <laughs> well, just uh, or a crying pillow if you need. I want a mug. Yeah. I want uh, a mug. <laughs> and also, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It does help us uh, keep going. And remember, you are not alone. And keep writing. Thank you so much to the incredible and very warm Nicole Perlman. Nicole, I'll say it. You are both incredibly nice and a tough motherfucker, as we went over on the show. So thanks so much for coming on the show. It was an honor to have you. Um, I'm sure you all heard Lorian sheepishly introduce the Patreon at the end of today's episode. I'll go ahead and say I'm really excited about what we're doing over there. Of course, it's totally optional, but the um, Austin Film Festival debrief that Megan Lorian did this week was just so much fun. And that's accessible at the $5 tier in addition to a bunch of back episodes and our upcoming uh, virtual Q&A that's going to be with Megan Lorian live on a Zoom accessible at the $20 tier. So if you're at all interested, uh, it's linked below in the description. And to those who have already joined the Patreon, we see you and we're so excited to start a new journey with all of you. It's really exciting. Um, speaking of a journey, we've come so far on this show, partly in thanks to the amazing five-star reviews that all of you all have written on Apple Podcasts. And when you write those five-star reviews, what it does is it bumps our show up in the algorithm to help other writers find our show. So we really appreciate it. And I'm going to read a couple on air to honor your beautiful writing. I'm going to start with Jacob Medjuk, who says, Dear Santa, I love my wife and work and my children. A century more of that, please. Also, I hope I die before Meg, Lorian, and Jeff. A world without weekly new episodes of this podcast would be pointless. Their ferociously generous coaching has disassembled and rebuilt my entire approach to storytelling repeatedly. Forever grateful. Jacob, I relate to this review on a visceral level. I feel like Meg and Lorian have also disassembled and rebuilt my entire approach to storytelling in a very beautiful and important way in terms of how I tell stories. So um, I see you and I agree with your review. All right, up next we have Janine21 who says, Must listen. I thought the screenwriter's life was a lost dream I would look back on fondly. After three years of not writing, or letting myself get in idea zone, this podcast gave me the confidence to begin again. Knowing that all writers struggle with self-doubt and hating their work gave me the space to give myself compassion. I love that. The practical writing tools that the hosts, as well as their guests, provide are invaluable. Learning about how they create a character and plot gave me the tent poles to structure a story in a way I'd never been able to. I'm forever in your debt. My creative little girl thanks you for letting her speak again. Wow, that's beautiful. I want to make sure Megan and Lorian see that review because it's um, really profound. Um, to everyone who's writing reviews, we really appreciate it. We have the goal of reaching 500 reviews before the end of the year. So uh, we ask that you all help us in our mission to get there. And um, in the meantime, thanks so much for tuning into the show course we encourage you to join our facebook group where there are a ton of exciting conversations happening and until then remember you are not alone and keep writing <laughs>